0: Hey, everybody, what's up? I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And welcome to Animabies. We are back here in the year 2024. Uh, We are ready to go, and we are ready to talk about a cartoon that is now old enough to drink and has been for a year. So that's fun. Um, Today we are going to be discussing Disney's early 2000s hit, Kim Possible.
1: Paige, I think you forgot one of the most important things about the fact that it's 2024. It's the year of our Lord. I After I said it,
0: I was like, I didn't mention that it was the year of our Lord.
1: You got to leave room for Christ.
0: Yes, leave room for Jesus. <laughs> um, so, Kim Possible premiered on the Disney Channel in 2002. Um, it ran until 2007, Uh, and comprised four seasons that made up a total of 87 episodes, which is actually really interesting. That is a lot for a Disney series, period, let alone an animated series. Um, It was the second ever animated series to air exclusively on the Disney Channel. Um, The first was The Proud Family, and it was also the first ever show made like as an original series by uh walt disney television animation so um a lot of firsts there um it also had two television movies it was like a merchandising sensation and it is still so beloved um by people even to this day that they made a live action film in 2019 that looks terrible
1: (laughs) you this is an audio medium so you can't see my fervent shaking of my head as Paige unveiled that knowledge to you but i want to watch it so bad (laughs) and i think it will be (laughs) the cgi looks like it's from 2005 when the show was (laughs) so i think that that's pretty apropos Uh, uh,
0: um so this show was uh created by um Bob Schooley and Mark McCorkle. Um, you probably don't recognize their names. Uh, it is because they are most known for this show. And they their, their sort of jobs are that they are writers and producers. So what happened here is that there were these, a couple of writers and producers who worked on stuff for Disney. And Disney said, we want to make an animated show. Can you uh, put together a pitch for us? which I think is like worth noting because that is a really huge difference between the way that Disney does things and the way that other networks, especially in particularly Cartoon Network do things. On Cartoon Network, we're used to like people who we could more describe as like auteurs, right? Basically who are like, they are animators. They come from like an animation background and they like have created their own project, which they then shop and like a network picks it up, like like usually Cartoon Network picks it up, right? And surprisingly, like Disney is like sort of the founding animation brand in the world, basically. So many of these animators that we've talked about went to Cal Arts, which was founded by Walt Disney, You know, um, and yet, but at the same time, like, you do not see, with the really notable exception of Alex Hirsch with with Gravity Falls, you just really don't see the same kind of, like, okay, here's Disney picking up a project that has, like, you know, the sort of, like, vision of, like, a creator behind it who's going to come on to run the show. They're, like, talking to people that they have in-house and saying, like, hey, like, put together some some ideas for us, you know, Uh, which I think is a really different kind of creative process.
1: I can't imagine that that is not more likely to happen now because they're so big. They can say Mm -hmm. there's got to be somebody in this giant behemoth of a monopoly to uh, write us a show that we Mm -hmm. want. I mean, you you, kind of see that with, I mean, anything related to Marvel or Star Wars, it's all like Kevin Fage or whoever is like, oh, well, they've got another show. They've got another Mm. show. They've got another show. And I it's interesting. I was just reading about evolution and there's a part of me that's like, I wonder if their recent problems with their creative content is that they're inbreeding too much that they're drawing from the same wells too often and then that's a weakness of that particular strategy whereas cartoon network there are lineages but eventually those lineages are allowed to be handed over to the next generation of people right pendleton ward didn't become the cartoon network yeah, guy yeah
0: exactly it's not like literally everything that's on the channel is now like created by pendleton ward like there's a difference between like these three like this guy came in he created something he had several people who worked under him who also were interesting voices and they each created something and they also had people who worked under them that were interesting voices that like this got their foot in the door and then they created like that's different than like being like we have a stable of writer producers who like know the Disney brand and we go to the same ones over and over and over again and are like what's your next idea make something for me make something for me you know because like it's like it's a difference between like you know fostering a sort of creative environment and just like wringing one person dry.
1: I feel like right now that must be because they wanted a coherent vision for a a Uh multi-movie series they Uh want the mcu to have a very clear vision and i think star wars will probably have only entrenched them in this view because they tried to give creative control to multiple people and the sequel trilogy is widely considered to be at the i won't state my own opinions but creatively inconsistent and kind of a mess Mm -hmm. narratively because you had creatives who essentially didn't agree with each other's vision and you can see that in the final product i Mm -hmm. so they're they're unwilling to basically create a universe bible and then pass it on they have to make sure that the the dude is maintaining their their creative vision through throughout this extended universe but I think we might be seeing the limitations of that perspective and I wonder how that'll change as Disney starts to trim the fat and
0: yeah I just projects. like what I would really like for them to realize is that we don't need any more of these particular fucking IP lines like I just am like we don't need any more Marvel movies. We don't need any more, like, Star Wars movies. We certainly don't need 78,000 low-budget fucking streaming shows about, like, each of these universes. We don't. Please, please, I'm just, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to even just, even just switch to some other different pre-existing IP and make too many of that for a while. Like, just anything different. Anything different than what you're doing right now.
1: Well, I I think they're probably going to listen to you because they're not putting out, like, I think the only movie slated to come out superhero wise in 2024 is Deadpool 3, which. Oh, okay Yeah. And those are good. Those are good, good, actually. Right. Yeah. Um, Because they're less. Yeah,
0: because it's like they're different. And so they're fresh, you know and because they actually have the passion of a of one man's singular vision who hasn't been rung dry it's because Ryan Reynolds loves Deadpool so much and you can feel that in all of the stuff that he's just really thrilled to be making Deadpool right
1: so th- hopefully this year will be the respite we all desperately right. desperately
0: need <laughs> yeah but that's that's a bit of a digression um i i don't know i I think
1: understanding disney is integral to understanding disney shows because basically going back in time this model just gets expanded right disney disney brings people in and then they never let them go <laughs> there it, yeah. it's a stockholm syndrome situation. I mean Disney has a very particular way of doing things and I think it's a nice point of comparison against places like Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon especially since in the evolutionary sense Disney's winning.
0: Oh yeah yeah definitely um it definitely replicates itself the most. Um, yeah and, and I also think like it's just important to understand like why the shows are, The way that they are like, you know, like Kim Possible is a great and engaging show, but it has no plot. Like there's no overarching story of Kim Possible. There aren't even like season long arcs in Kim Possible. It's very, very like it's it's intensely episodic. Um, And then you even look at some character decisions like, okay, like why does Rufus exist? Because we can make toys right? Like there's no way that they were just like, and he has a weird little cute animal friend. You know, it was like Disney asked them to create an animal sidekick because everything in Disney has to have an animal sidekick and it's mostly for toys. <laughs> Even though I and love... And also it's just part of the Disney brand to have an animal sidekick.
1: <laughs> and and animals, I, I really like animal sidekicks but now that you're saying that it does feel like Rufus baby didn't exist at first. And then he did.
0: Like, I love Rufus, but come on, you know,
1: <laughs> and that, well, and that's the thing is just like everybody fucking loves cheesecake. Now. I know not everybody loves cheesecake, but a lot of people love cheesecake is it's designed to be loved. And mm-hmm. that's, it plays on us. So, um, yep, yep. Kim, Kim possible has a very recurring cast Most of you, if you've seen the show, will remember them. Uh, I want you to keep in mind, as we describe the cast, that Kim Possible is described as a basic average girl, quote, unquote. So, uh, (laughs) Kim is Kimberly Ann Possible. Her her last name is Possible, uh, Mm -hmm. voiced by Christy Carlson Romano. She is a high school student that is a cheerleader, is a very high excelling student is very socially competent. And also, by the way, she's a super spy in her off time, which basically implies that she never sleeps and is totally cool with it. You know, just running on three hours of sleep, traveling international date lines all the time. I think that we've uncovered a
0: secret Adderall addiction. Actually, I I do too.
1: (laughs) So, uh, Kim is, Kim kind of feels like the showrunner's attempt to start slang in the culture that doesn't exist. No big, what's the sitch, so the drama, like-
0: So not the drama. So not the drama. Yeah, like that's something I've noticed about the show is it's really slangy, but like I was alive. I wasn't a teenager at that time, but I was alive at that time. And I don't remember a lot of that, like, being this, sl- like, and I think that's a big thing about Disney and Disney Channel stuff, especially, is they try and be like, oh, like, teen culture and, like, slang, but they're, like, shockingly ham-fisted about it for the world's biggest corporation.
1: <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell if they were trying to create culture or reflect it and just did a very mm. bad job about it. I think they were trying to make culture. I think that they were were like, let's create some phrases that everybody will start saying. Just like companies trying to be like, I want to create a name that will become a verb. Sure. Yeah. And that's like a very fraught prospect because that if that fails, it just you, you look ham fisted and like you're out of touch. Yeah. So yeah, Kim's sidekick slash eventual partner basically is Ron Nold, Ron Stoppable. He's the you know classic goofy, goofy sidekick. Right, classic mm-hmm. sort of like a classic archetype of like competent main man, goofy side man. Uh, voiced by yeah, Will, Will Friedle.
0: Yeah, he's the real heart of the show. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like like in in many episodes Kim isn't even really a character because she's to be honest such a Mary Sue Um, that like Ron Ron is the real main character like Ron is the one with like complexity and like flaws and like emotional journeys and stuff like that that like are just like way more intense and memorable and relatable than any of the like sort of personal plot lines that Kim goes through
1: uh, he does use the booyah catchphrase, which is an actual thing that people say. So People
0: did say booyah at the time a lot.
1: People people do actually say that, so that seemed to work out. Um, I take mm-hmm. offense to how he's described. Well, people
0: already said booyah at the time.
1: I take offense to how he's described as cowardly, even though I'm like, mm, No, when you're facing a giant robot that says, Konnichiwa, you definitely <laughs> should be like, we shouldn't be here. Right, that's yeah. That's not Ron being a has a
0: reasonable reaction to Dan danger.
1: <laughs> um, Ron is always accompanied by Rufus, his uh, pet naked mole rat, which for many kids, I think, was their first exposure to the fact that there was an animal called a naked mole rat. Mm-hmm. It certainly was mine. And real ones are fucking gross. Yeah, they're 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 very not cute. They're very ugly. Yeah,
0: they're disgusting. Ron
1: is uh Rufus is basically a person. He has an intelligence and can communicate and work machinery. So Rufus is a Disney sidekick less uh more than an animal, right?
0: Yeah, he also says like occasional words. Like Ron will be talking and like, you know, talk about how he wants like nachos or something and Rufus will be like, "Hmm, nacho." <laughs>
1: um Wade, who's their tech support, he's like Q Q branch. If any of you are mm-hmm. familiar with the 007. he gives them all their tech. He's basically a genius, like a mechanical engineering computer genius. And he's
0: only ten. He's younger than them.
1: He's voiced by Taj Maori, who is the brother of T, uh, the Maori sisters from Sister mm-hmm. Sister. So yeah. that, that's an interesting connection there. Well,
0: what's really interesting is that all three of these characters are all voiced by someone who was in a um, highly successful um, Disney live-action property. Um, so Christy Carlson Romano was Wren and even Stevens. Um, Will Friedle is, of course, um, Eric, the older brother from... Uh, Boy Meets World. And then Taj Mowry was the star of Smart Guy.
1: I. We've noticed a theme. The theme continues Black yeah. Nerds.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It's like the entirety of, like, the... so Like, I'd be interested to see if we look at maybe live-action properties from this time period, if you see a similar trend. But it's like the children's animation universe went, you know what? Black people can be nerds, too. <laughs> yeah, I... We need to make it very clear, black men and boys can be nerds.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, like... This is more, this is a, this is definitely more than a pattern now because like it, it keeps happening.
0: It's almost like, okay, so like in the mid to late 20th century, the like sort of like racist stereotype about black men that was like used as a cudgel, and especially in the 90s in the super predator era, right, was that black men were violent and aggressive and hypersexual and threatening. And there's a reaction to that, I think. I think because people who are in the entertainment industry do tend to be a little more socially liberal. And so we're coming off of the nineties where, like, Hillary Clinton's getting up and saying that, like, 15-year-old black boys are super predators who are, like, going to murder everyone in their neighborhood or something. And they're like, what is... What's the opposite of that? um, Hillary Like, what's Clinton what's did... less threatening than a nerd, you know? Hillary Clinton did say that, didn't she? Yes.
1: It's kind of amazing how everybody just forgot that.
0: Oh, we did not forget.
1: <laughs> um but
0: yeah so it's almost like they're like the opposite of a super predator is a nerd there's nothing in the world that's less threatening like physically or sexually than a nerd so let's show a bunch of black boys as nerds because that's super unthreatening and we can like you know shift the way that we're discussing this it almost feels like that
1: yeah i i think that it's interesting to watch how the representation train has chugged along because mm-hmm. what we're not seeing at this period are uh, as mi- like I'm, I'm thinking back to the shows that we've watched. We're not seeing Asian-American members in a, in the ensemble cast nearly as much. Yeah, um, But you definitely I feel like I see it all the time now. So I'm I'm just thinking about like in a in an inner friend group is it possible to like trace on a graph when certain minority groups started getting, getting added to friend groups? Right. Cause like the black nerd, the black nerd started like very, <laughs> very in the early nineties. And then it kind of just like goes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, when, when, when do other minority groups start showing up. And I don't or, think that's a bad thing. I'm do you just think the presence
0: of black nerds in all of these shows is due partly to the success of family matters? I, I was... The problem with, like,
1: isn't Urkel more of a geek than a nerd? Like I mean,
0: that's splitting hairs uh, at a certain point, you know? <laughs> I I, well, I think <clears throat>
1: talking about it as an archetype is a valuable exercise. Oh, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I had that thought. And then internally mm-hmm. I thought, Chris, no geek versus nerd but you're right i don't think people i don't think hollywood creatives give a shit about parsing that like he was yeah he was a dude Mm -hmm. who wore glasses suspenders and like talked nerdy and did soup like weird science yeah that so so yeah and and like
0: you know like like an understanding of like technology and like rapidly evolving tech products was becoming like more of a More of a thing that, like, people were aware of in the early 2000s. So, it's, like, okay, like, what do nerds do? They like technology. So, you know, they'll know about technology or whatever. Or they'll be good at school or something like that, you know? Um, So, I think it's, like, ultimate, like, it's all in the same vein. So, that might be connected because, like, like, Urkel was wildly popular in the 90s. Like, unbelievably popular. So, that might be part of it is just, like, that just, like, really became ingrained as like an archetype um you know because of the success of that one particular product that might be part of it um
1: i agree i i think that you could write a master's thesis on that the The proliferation of that archetype in the 90s
0: yeah definitely that's definitely something we'll keep an eye on like the presence of black nerds like specifically male ones never female ones um, and uh, the, the their 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 love of technology or not, I think that's really interesting. I do think this show is slightly, it's a little slightly more diverse. I yeah. think something that's interesting about Disney products, especially in the early two thousands, is that they were clearly working really hard on having like a diverse offering um a, a, of you know of products on their network right they wanted to be like we also tell stories about black families or whatever but their the properties were almost segregated right because there was the proud family which was a show about a black family who had black friends and a couple of like latino friends and there was a token white girl right um but then you have kim possible which is a show about a white family with white friends that have one or two like you know token minorities in it right um so and it was the same way if you think about like there was that's so raven which was a a black Mm -hmm. family with black friends and a token white character and then you had every other show on the network at the time which was about white families with white friends and one or two token minority characters so even though they were offering a diverse there was diversity if you viewed the network as a whole the shows themselves were almost segregated and i think this is an example of that you know it's
1: i i have to wonder if that comes from like a quotizing mindset like you're, mm. it's impossible for you to create gr- homogenous groups, mm-hmm. regardless of that the the groups, you know, status as a minority or not a minority. I mean, like you'll never see I like you'll never see a show that is all gay characters unless it's like a gay show, like uh, looking or something. Um,
0: yeah, because it's like it's like, it's it's marketing demographics, right? Because it, it, it's like yeah. okay, like like middle class, like black families is a marketing demographic. Well, like avatar- and-
1: advertisers are gonna wanna see that, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, wow, you've got characters that we can sell everything to.
0: Yeah, like we could run different ad bets during, you know, different times um, or whatever.
1: I desperately wanna know two things.
0: Hmm.
1: What were the time slots of the majority, demo- like what were the time slots of shows with certain majority members of their cast being black or white? What the time slots and what were the products being sold during those time
0: slots? Well, one thing that like, so Disney specifically, one thing is that no products were being sold because a very distinct thing about all of the Disney networks, I watched them a lot as a child, is they did not advertise products the only ads that were shown during ads were for other disney programming how did they make their money they're disney so, <laughs> so they ran the disney channel at a loss i don't i don't really know but like when you would watch the disney channel there would not be like ads for cereal or whatever it would be ads for Stuff on that Disney network, stuff on other Disney networks. And like when you would watch Toon Disney, it would be the same way. It was like the whole goal of Disney TV channels, which they expanded them to have several more, was to keep you watching the Disney TV channels, basically. It was so you would not watch other channels.
1: So do you think that they were trying to make their money through advertising and like Disney World trips and stuff?
0: Um, I think that they were trying to...
1: Like create
0: they, dedicated consumers is what they were doing. I think they were trying uh, to inculcate brand loyalty to Disney in children.
1: Okay. That would make sense. Cause then they would go on to buy their backlog of products and would like people would want Disney toys in stores. So, so basically they're not making money through traditional advertising so much as mm-hmm. the traditional toys like shows yeah. are meant to sell toys.
0: Yeah, yeah, that and also like um creating like psychotic Disney adults, you know. <laughs> Stuff like that.
1: Well, it certainly fucking worked, didn't it?
0: Yep, yep, it did.
1: <laughs> uh, truly, truly a successful psyop. Um, all right. So <laughs> Wade Wade, Ron, Rufus, and Kim are the main the main protagonist cohort. They are uh acted alongside by people like kim's mom who is a neurosurgeon kim's dad who is a rocket scientist kim's brothers who are tiny little chaotic gremlin geniuses and Mm -hmm. um you know some of their like high school people like bonnie who's her social villain um Mm -hmm. like the the coach whose hair changes colors like three times because their character model uh Consistency was very sloppy in the beginning. Um the uh who else come comes to mind? I don't know. Dr. Draken is a main villain. Oh brock <laughs> yeah. Uh Dr. Yeah. dracken is voiced by Don John DiMaggio, is her main villain. He's got the scar. Shigo. Who's voiced by Nicole Sullivan? You guys would all recognize Nicole Sullivan if you saw her. She's on a lot of really? mad, yeah. She's on a lot of mad TV stuff. She's on King of Queens. She uh is that really really sad patient in Scrubs who is like depressed all oh the time? Oh my god, her! Yeah, she's she's she she does a lot of act side acting stuff. Basically, What's like... interesting
0: is I always recognize her voice in animation, yes. but I never made the connection to the to the live action stuff, huh? There yeah, you she, go. Does, she she does she she
1: does quite a bit of stuff. Um, there's a rotating rogues gallery of of villains. Some notables for me: uh, senior, 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 and senior, uh, senior, junior, senior. <laughs> Uh, their last name is Senior, uh, Senior, Senior, Senior's first name is Senior, and Senior is because they are Spanish.
0: Yep, it's fantastic. It's it's genuinely really funny. And if you don't think it's funny, I don't care, and I wish <laughs> your life
1: weren't so joyless. Yeah, we're, like, going through our rebellious phase. Like, <laughs> whatever. But uh, other villains include Gil, Mutated Fish Boy. Uh, I forget the geneticist's name who collects the, their world's version of Beanie Babies.
0: That was like a one-offer, I think. Yeah. I don't think she shows up very many times.
1: Um, God, who else shows up? Doctor... The... What's the Scottish golfer villain's name?
0: Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah. I. Yeah. Mon- Mon- He's Monkey... like a C-tier Kim Possible villain. Monkey Fist shows up. Yeah, Lord Monkey Fist is good. Uh, The Um, one that's like a Jersey mechanic that's also voiced by John DiMaggio (laughs) with the long hair. John DiMaggio
1: continues to get a lot of work. Yep. (laughs) Um, Right. uh, Scottish golfer, a Duff Killigan. (laughs) He he shoots exploding uh, golf balls.
0: Yeah, various kinds of like uh, weaponized golf balls, basically. Uh, all of you guys um, would
1: recognize the voice actor for uh, Senior, 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 because it's fucking Ricardo. Montevain.
0: I was about to say, was it Ricardo Montalban? <laughs> yeah. Like that's a real get, honestly. It, it's
1: such such a get. Um, clearly, they had to switch voice actors, though. I, I bet. Did it he was, die in the middle bet, of the yeah, run I of the bet show? It, yeah. Uh, cause somebody else took over. So it's yeah. one of those. Okay. You no. Know, uh Professor Dementor is played by Patton Oswald.
0: I thought that was in the uh live action.
1: Uh no, that is that is also like a, a member of the late cast, I believe. What? Yeah.
0: I'm like missing something. Oh, Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. Yeah. He wears the black Oswald back then too.
1: Yeah. He wears the, the black helmet. He's very short. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Him. Okay. Okay.
1: So we've got uh, the dynamic of the show. For those of you who need a refresher is the tension between being a secret super spy ish, you know, and being a high
0: school person with high school problems. Well, I will say, like, actually, it's a huge difference between this and, like, a teen superhero show is that it's not secret. Like, everyone knows. Her family all knows. Like, everybody knows.
1: And nobody gives a fucking shit except...
0: Nobody cares.
1: (laughs) Nobody gives a fucking shit uh, that Kim is flying around the world, like, saving people from avalanches or supervillains. She's just extrajudicially. <laughs> okay, the the concept of sovereignty really falls apart when Ooh, yeah. when Kim is literally just like capturing villain. She gives them to the local police authorities, but like Kim is going to Japan and is extrajudicially breaking into a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> like, what if one of those hostages has gotten killed? It would have been a major international incident.
0: Yeah, it's like she definitely doesn't do any, like, extrajudicial assassinations, but she definitely does extrajudicial beatdowns, for sure.
1: Extractions and... and Yeah, for real. Yeah. Everybody seems to be cool with it. Yeah, I guess, like, the world's governments are fine with that. (laughs) (sighs) So, uh, we could talk about specific episodes, but I'm more interested in digging into what the show... How the show occupies our mind brains, you know our mind spaces, mm-hmm. and for sure, my biggest thing with this from the very beginning that I that I noticed and I, as I was watching it, is the language used at the in the very beginning of the theme song is "I'm your basic average girl" and I'm here to save the world, mm-hmm. and this sets us up with the idea that Kim Possible is an average. 15 year old or 16 year old, however old she she is. And Kim Possible is anything but average.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she is completely exceptional in every imaginable way.
1: She is very athletically talented, not just trained. Talented.
0: Yes. She she, she has like a natural athleticism that is very impressive like you can't do all that just because you went to cheer practice she she
1: does all of these crazy adventures manages to get enough sleep she is very good in school she is socially very competent and able to interact with people from a lot of different places and cultures she is uh captain only- of the
0: cheer squad <laughs>
1: She's captain of the cheer squad. Her physical athleticism extends to other sports, not so she can snowboard, she can paraglide, she can uh she knows martial arts, she can do gymnastics, not just cheerleading gymnastics, but like full-on gymnastics for teams. She is uh she has lots of friends, she is empathetic, she has parents that already are in the top one one percent of human families because one's a neuro an eminent neurosurgeon the other's an eminent rocket scientist Mm
0: -hmm. with
1: genius offspring yep they the idea that this is average is is in is sort of like you know it's a cartoon guys calm down i'm not go yeah. with me on this one. It's insulting, though, a little bit, right? The, mm-hmm. the idea that like, yeah. this is the yeah, average it's family. Like, like, well,
0: it's like, okay, so I was a little girl at the time, and I was watching this show as a little girl, and I was like, Kim Possible is super awesome, um, but it also like, set, like, it shows something that is extremely exceptional, and then calls it average, um, thereby, like, setting an inherently unattainable standard, basically, like if being like a straight A student, an incredible athlete, um, exceptional at, you know, time management, and, you know, like executive function type skills, um, like very socially competent, popular, able to manage their social life, like all of those things, like, if all of those things like are, are average, and, like, you can't attain them, right? Like, what does that mean you are, you know? I,
1: the tension from this for me and the, and the way that I was kind of thinking about it is an inherent tension between attempting to be aspirational and, in, and make people feel empowered, uh, basically, to increase their self-efficacy... The, the idea that they can do. And the fact that this is a television show that exists in an ecosystem and in, in, in a society that already puts a lot of pressure on people and in especially shows exist in an economic marketplace. So like the forces of capitalism are pushing on people to be productive and succeed and, and basically do things a certain way that on the one hand you could say this is trying to show people what could be right that this is you can do all these things you can like especially i think a lot of people would do sort of a surface pass on this and be like yeah girls can fucking kick ass too yeah but i i think just because you have a kick-ass girl doesn't mean you can like you know wipe your hands and call it a day and you're like i'm a good feminist i wrote a show about a powerful woman i think power comes like power and an increase in the idea that you can do something comes from realistic portrayals more than it does from Mm -hmm. exaggerated ones
0: yeah I, i don't usually really like this term because i think it's often used to be um Dismissive of, um, you know, char- female characters who I think are um, actually perfectly complex and fine, or um, female characters who are just merely competent, or female characters that people think resemble their female creator too much. But in this case, Kim Possible is literally a Mary Sue. Yeah, like she's literally a Mary Sue. Because what are like what are her flaws? what are her challenges she's
1: a perfectionist um,
0: yeah she secretly likes like beanie Babies still even though she's a teenager like she um when she sees a boy she likes she feels nervous and isn't as charismatic and socially competent when talking to a boy she likes as she is talking to anybody else
1: she's just like <laughs> you or me
0: yes yeah. i
1: you know and and you know people saying like pish posh this might not actually affect people i mean we need to remember that children are very impressionable and Mm -hmm. that like there's a lot of there there there's research on things like if let's pretend that people are kind of seeing this and they're saying um that's who i want to be they're setting up like these are ideal things i this is sort of like in i'm integrating this into like my ideal self um and these things are are very hard to obtain reasonably. We know that like the distance between how you perceive yourself now versus like how your ideal self looks, the further that distance, the result tends to be an increase in feelings of dissatisfaction and depression, that people feel sad when they they see a lot of distance between who they would like to be and who they are now. And setting people up very early with a very exaggerated extended, even if you call it aspirational, Aspirations should, I guess this is an opinion sort of forged by my understanding of that kind of stuff. Aspirations should be attainable. And the show never once, even when it's like, Kim, you're doing too much. The show never once says, Kim, maybe you should pick a lane and and focus on excellence in one area. And I, I just... I I, I have to wonder if people's ideas of what they want to be were set a little too high (laughs) for, for, for what the show was like, for what real life maybe affords people.
0: I think it's really, um, really relevant given that the, you know, the demo for this show was like, um, seven to 10 or seven to 11 or whatever it is. Um... And uh, take a look actually at the art style of the show Mm. because her waist and the waist of every female character in that show is so tiny, teeny, 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 tiny and possibly tiny little waists. But they're all like very curvy too. They have very curvy hips um, and they usually have a fair amount of boob for teenage like uncomfortable amounts of hip and boob for teenage girls uh for one but like also all of the adult women are even more that way so it's setting a completely insane like literally every single woman has a like 20 inch waist but is still super curvy and that is an interesting choice of art for a show for little girls
1: yeah we do know that aside from those like uh I guess, achievement-based aspirations that Kim does, being a super spy, doing good in school, being uh, head of a cheer team. Like, we do know for a fact that young women internalize body images that they see very strongly, especially during adolescence and pre-adolescence that is highly charged. And, uh, you know, that's not just like pearl clutching. That's, no, this, this definitely you definitely see this pop up in people's descriptions of why they have body image issues. So it, this isn't a harmless thing. And of course Kim possible doesn't bear the burden of, of the entire media ecosystem, but it is an important part, right? That this Mm -hmm. is, this person is average that I just can't get over that language. That the idea that this is average, like this is a norm. It's basically norm setting that this is what should be. And this is what is acceptable. And... Well,
0: even if you look at like, so they're always hanging out at like, like Bel Nacho or whatever it's called, right? And like a big part of the bit there is that like Ron and Rufus are always like whorfing like, you know, fast food, Mexican food, right? Um, and literally many times, unless I'm like completely misremembering, you will see Kim sitting there with a salad, right? Like, Kim will literally have a salad while Ron, like, horfs down a bunch of Mexican food. I'm like, Ron is also thin. (laughs) Yes, you know? Like, why can't Kim also horf Mexican food? Uh, Yeah, so this... I, I because Kim is an aspirational girl and so she you know an aspirational girl like takes care of her body she's good to herself she's good to her nutrition
1: (laughs) I I you said it best earlier and I want to give you credit because it'll sound like I'm I'm smart she's the Barbie of teenage high school superhero for sure
0: yeah Uh, it's like yeah it's in the same she is she is average in the same way that Barbie is an average woman for sure
1: you know, never let it be said that I, I love Kim. I think she's kick-ass. I just... Yeah, for sure. Right? Uh, the whole point is that we should be critical of media portrayals of young women, especially, I think. Yes. And, yes. and, and, and you know, pivot to Ron. Right? I actually... Mm-hmm. I have more positive to say about Ron in the sense that mm-hmm. I think I wasn't used to seeing socially... the Like, the wiki calls him awkward, socially awkward. And I'm like, he... He is very passionate about what he likes. He actually mm-hmm. is very smart, and mm-hmm. although he's not the high school popular type, he mm-hmm. is very. I I think he's pretty self assured. He's not
0: smooth, you yeah, know. He's not um, smooth, but um, he also he is still like. Let's, okay, so they're 15-year-olds, so let's um, call it romantically, right? Uh, he is romantically successful, right? Like, we see him, like, flirt with and, like, win the affections of, at least temporarily, multiple other young women um, during the course of the show. Um, what's her name? Um, Maya? Yeah. I yeah, think so. which is also interesting because she's racially ambiguous, so I think there's, like, a like there's like an interracial relationship aspect there, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is interesting. But like, she is like a, you know, sort of side romantic interest uh, for Ron for a fair amount of the show. And, you know, he is charming to her and like, she wants to socialize with him. And even though he's not smooth, definitely embarrassed himself in front of her. Like that takes a type of social competency.
1: I, and he goes on these missions and he's, he's like, scared when dangerous things happen and the show kind of makes you feel like he's cowardly when in reality mm-hmm. you're like
0: mm, that's a reasonable reaction these, these
1: are reasonable reactions but I I I liked seeing kind of a nerdy person who is socially competent it made me feel like extroverted people can also be nerds because I I think we're used to seeing like you know introverted cloying more anxious individuals being introverted and nerdy mm-hmm. and that is That was never really, I was always a really gregarious person as a child, but I was also fucking If you
0: just, like, look at you and I and our social experience and, like, the niches we filled in our social circles in college, you will see very obviously that, like, people who like nerdy things can be, like, popular, (laughs) you know, and, like, socially competent.
1: Yeah, I mean, even, like, Wade, too, is great. He's mm-hmm. like, Wade is, like, an agoraphobe who's basically always shut up in his room. But he's hyper-intelligent. Mm-hmm. But he's also socially competent. He's very pleasant. Yeah. He's emotionally mature. Like, he, he's a good... He, he He's also a nerd who's also very accessible. And mm-hmm. I... Again, I'm usually not used to see. I wasn't used to seeing that as much. So I think the show does a good job of showing a different kind of nerdy than mm-hmm. I am used... I was used to.
0: Yeah, and, like, also, like, while, while Ron is, like, pretty smart, it also shows, like, there's, like, Kim being, like, an A-plus student and Ron being, like, a B-plus student. You know, they show that dichotomy or whatever, but Ron is still... He's intelligent, um, and he's successful academically, but he's not, like, a genius, so it kind of decouples, like, sort of, like, nerdiness from, um, like, academic successfulness in, in a way that is not, was not common at that time, because, like, really what what makes something nerdy is, like, enthusiasm level, <laughs> you know, and, like, he has a level of enthusiasm and an intensity of reaction to things that we, we see as nerdy, but he is not, like, into tech or, like, you know, good at math or, like, any of those other things that have historically also been coupled in with nerdiness.
1: I think that one thing that this also does is it presents a person who's, like, a male character who's willing to do the thing of showing enthusiasm, which is being vulnerable, especially around people who like Bonnie, who they basically know are going to talk down to them. I mm-hmm. I think that a lot of men that I've known are afraid to show that they care about something because they, that makes you vulnerable to criticism mm-hmm. or, or it can be enthusiasm. And that level of emotional exuberance can be, misconstrued as flamboyance which is more feminine like is perceived as being more feminine it's and and ron is just like no fuck it i i fucking love nachos i love like the way that he expresses emotions is very expressive and i think that Mm -hmm. that is nice but he's not coded as being gay at all which is also nice Mm -hmm. because i think that a lot of times those people in animation get coded as more gay and
0: no it's but he's very straight he wears cargo pants and a baseball he's
1: very he is you look at him and you're like that man is very heterosexual that man
0: is heterosexual And
1: um, (laughs) it's also interesting because he pursues um he's he's a geeky person who pursues uh, a numbers strategy to propositioning people for dates (laughs) <laughs> which, by the way, dating is a numbers game, but people mm-hmm. are so afraid of rejection and he's not really afraid of rejection, which.
0: Yeah, like he, he isn't, he's like, he like show, he is someone who is like totally aware of their social role and very comfortable with it. Yeah. Like he is Kim's sidekick. He knows that. He does not feel weird about it. It does not make him feel inferior or like le- like anything. He's just like, "Yep, here I am."
1: Uh he and Kim's relationship, of course, ends up being like a uh just like every fucking show with like so many of these shows especially children's shows have to have a romantic subplot and like of course kim and ron are the classic will they won't they that everybody fucking knows is a will they because like why would you do it and not like
0: it, it's never won't they it's like, never it's
1: won't just- they because <laughs> because if it gives you if you do a won't they it's too sad audience it's too sad it's disappointing
0: you need to satisfy be disappointed
1: it's so like having a fucking wedding in a show or a movie is like you gotta have a fucking wedding
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i, I my, my view of this is like there's always got to be a romantic subplot and you know what um it's weird that we do that in shows like fairly odd parents or in this show or in danny phantom where like yes teenage romance is a thing but don't you think it's weird that people are getting like warm feelings about this as if like oh they're gonna be together forever like ron and kim they need to get together and the like it's so happy when how many fucking people do you know from high school that are still together
0: Yeah, and that's the thing is, it's like, that's, so it's like, we we talk about it with the, like, and Chris, you were the one who pointed this out earlier, the language of, like, they're gonna end up together or whatever, and I guess that's true in the sense of, like, when the media property comes to an end, they are together, but, um... Like, you know, like, part of what's interesting about, like, media products and part of what makes us want more of them is imagining the characters continuing on when we are no longer privy to their story. And, in fact, like, Ron and Kim, like, being together forever, like, they like statistically based on the real world, they probably won't be. And if they were, it would be bad. It would be a bad thing. You know, they would probably not have a very good marriage. (laughs) Like, it would just be... It's, like, there are some people who are high school sweethearts, and they stay together forever, and they get married, and they love each other very much, and they have a very stable relationship, and that's wonderful for them, and it is very rare. It's very rare. So, it is super weird for all these shows where, like, as we said, the demographic is, like, 7 to 11, Um, which is a period where, like, you're starting to feel crushes a little more intensely. Like, you'll crush on the same person for maybe as much as a whole school year or whatever. But it's like you're not interacting with them in a way where you're, like, sort of expecting it to be, like, reciprocal at all or where there's any kind of real, like, tension to it. Um, So, like, why do we need to put these romantic subplots in these shows for children and, like, also give the impression that these teenagers, like, need to enter into, like, a long-term relationship, you know?
1: I think people want to believe in the stability of love and the innocence of first love. And it it sort of holds, like, a sacrosanct position in people's view of human relationships. And, I, you know, adults are making these shows. And it makes <laughs> me wonder... You know, is it possible for creators to ever truly divorce the fact that they're sexually active adults from their memories of childhood or uh, how they create properties? I think they can. I think a lot of modern shows have shown that they're able to do that. But, you know, is it is it that it's just an archetype? Right. Is it lazy or rather, is it an easy way to ensure audience buy in? Right. Maybe it's more economic than it is unconscious i Mm -hmm. I don't i don't know for sure
0: well it's also in the same way that the presence of an animal sidekick is kind of part of disney branding like a love story and like a romantic focus is also part of disney branding especially when the main character is female you know there's a reason that people like lost their shit at like um at at brave you know like having like nothing to do really with like romance even though i think that's really uh doing lilo and stitch pretty dirty you know but um it's i think like generally our culture really is like obsessed with the idea of like teenage love and 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 your first love and we do hold it as sacrosanct and we're very very focused on that and i think that that is a really bad thing Um, I really do. I think because, you know, there the whole there is a whole subsection of like the incel community who is completely, completely obsessed with the idea of teenage love that, you know, like these are men in their early 20s who even if they have had sex or had a partnership, or even if they do in the future, it's not gonna be enough to them because they didn't have sex in high school. They believe that teenage love is such a foundational and important human experience that if you did not have sex in high school, you will have a hole in your emotional life for the rest of your life that can never be healed or repaired by anything else. And that is an insane thing to believe. And I completely understand where they have gotten that impression from, you
1: know. And even outside of that sort of like intense subgroup example, Mm -hmm. I think people will feel more pressure to successfully, you know, court in high school because of this. And, you know, teenagers don't need any more fucking pressure than they're under based on their bodies Mm -hmm. and their own fucking minds during that period of time it will happen anyway. Like, it's just a very intense social environment for, for teens. Yeah, for sure. They're feeling everything yeah. intensely without the mechanisms to, to you know, cope as much with it in the, in the way that adults can cope with their, you know, their horniness and their self-esteem issues and all this stuff. But the idea that, like, you got to find your special someone in high school, instead of treating high school as, like, I don't know, the training grounds... For life is is potentially problematic
0: yeah I mean like shit I even like when I got to college I had the idea that like I didn't date very much in high school I was not romantically successful um I wasn't really in college either but um like I had the idea when I got to college that I would probably find my someone at college me too you know and even that like I thought I would find the person that I would spend the rest of my life with at college um, which I definitely didn't and was also really crazy for either of us to think given how small our college was <laughs> <laughs> well like not enough people <laughs> even
1: even to this day there are people that I know who got together in college that like I will mm-hmm. occasionally see break up and I feel like a part of my heart dies when that happens me and it's, too and it's yeah not, I know that it's not because of the couple it is it is but I think a decent chunk of it is because I have that little believe, like I have that little buried chunk of me that mm-hmm. wants to believe that young love.
0: Like the people that I know who got together when they were freshmen in college that are still together, like, I am just so touched by that all the time. And when the people I know who got together freshman year and were together through all of college and for a long time afterward, when I find out that they've broken up, it's heartbreaking to me. I'm like, no, that's so sad. You know, it's like, why? Like, I'm not, I mean, it's sad when people who have long relationships like break up or whatever, but like if they broke up after like that long of a time, like it was probably because they needed to or whatever, yeah. you, you know?
1: The question I would ask is, would you feel the same way about somebody who got together at 35 and broke up at 45?
0: No. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, it would be really sad, sad but, but it would have
1: it, loss of in it. It's that loss of innocence, right? That the it's just the, the another death of a youthful thing
0: and yeah exactly
1: I, whether we struggle with that because of our own personal things or because our culture has made young love to be this thing which is so ironic given the fact that everybody like juliet and romeo and juliet's great it's like dude shakespeare wrote Ju- romeo and juliet partially as like dude teenagers are fucking stupid like, like a like, cautionary tale <laughs> they will fall in love and their families will drive them to suicide <laughs> like this is not its this is not aspiration I know that's a debate a literary person's probably going to be like well actually Shakespeare like really genuinely believe blah 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 I don't give a fuck that's how I read it death of the author if Shakespeare agrees with me cool if he doesn't fuck that guy he's dead I don't (laughs) care um so haha
0: ha, Shakespeare you're fucking dead. You're fucking dead <laughs> and
1: I and I'm still alive to interpret your work. So whatever. But <laughs> I I the way to read Romeo and Juliet is that teenagers driven to passion make irrational decisions and in the context mm-hmm. of a family feud are prone to, you know, drastic measures, right? For sure. Um so young love is not necess- like it's not necessarily Part of me, you know, part Mm -hmm. of me, I've talked about terror management theory before on in our podcast. The idea that people, people, psychology, so many things and behaviors that we engage in are purely to deal with our death anxiety. I think Mm -hmm. I think that people like the way to view it from that perspective would be that we hold on to young love because in a way people who are still together. From their youth, it's almost as if we're seeing young things can last. Yeah. Yeah, Things from childhood are no longer dead.
0: Yeah. They're they're not dead yet.
1: And when they die, Mm -hmm. it's just a reminder that everything, even the most innocent and beautiful things end. And people don't like that. Right. It causes that, that anxiety to bubble up. And, mm-hmm. and i don't necessarily know if i agree with that perspective it's one perspective um mm-hmm. but that that's kind of one way i could you could even think about it why does it why does our culture yeah. obsess over it in the first place
0: yep yep yeah i mean but there's also something that you pointed out about this particular relationship um earlier that like i think you made a really good point which is that like it is part of a pretty classic arrangement where there is a mixed sex childhood friendship and there is this sort of it's it's like obligatory it's obligatory storytelling that of course these people who have known each other since childhood and had a strong and loving Uh, a a friendship bond like platonic relationship will have to become once they uh become people for whom uh like sexuality and sex is like something that is part of their lives even if they're still young teenagers and they're not actually having sex yet but they're driven by those things that they will obviously get together it's like like, from the time we all started reading Harry Potter, when we were all in elementary school, we always wondered which of the guys Hermione would get together with. It was never a question of that not being relevant or Hermione getting together with someone else. It was like, will Hermione end up with Ron or Harry? And she, like, lets us know in, like, book four, like, don't worry, it'll be Ron. Like, we'll we'll get there. And we do, you know, I <laughs> think it's like, why? Why is that necessary?
1: It is. I especially bring this point up because it makes me feel it makes me feel insane sometimes because I'm wondering, does culture make us think same sex friendships long-term are impossible, that there's always an inflection point where the two shall cross or, you know, is it actually impossible for, for there yeah. to be long-term same-sex friendships from childhood. That, you know what's so interesting to this? Is that examples like this where people have met each other very young, like were almost mm-hmm. raised together. The Westermark hypothesis predicts that they will actually fail to develop same-sex attraction as a, as a weird byproduct of inbreeding resistance. And... Um, That usually people. Well,
0: I mean, but that's also not true because, like, in sociology, like, and um, anthropology, there's like, you know, the investigation of the incest taboo. Like, one proposed explanation is the um, instinctive horror, um, like hypothesis, and that's been largely disproven by um, mostly studies of um, kibbutzim, where the people who were raised on the same kibbutz uh, marry each other at much, much higher rates, actually. Um, than the general population. And so that's generally considered, and that's been shown enough times, it's generally considered to be a refutation of the ex- um, the instinctive horror hypothesis for, you know, the uh, for an explanation of the incest taboo.
1: I will have to do some more reading about this because, right, an examination, there are a variety of published studies on specifically the Western Mark hypothesis, and I wonder, it's been a while since I've you know poked my head into that particular literature i wouldn't be surprised if you know the westermark hypothesis was a very um you know it's one of those things that it ideas that is like lightning in a bottle because it sounds so good right and usually mm-hmm. like things that sound too good to be true are um so i wouldn't be surprised if that's been revised i'm not ready to give it up completely based on one study but i do want to re-examine yeah it's Um, something
0: that gets studied it's studied a lot in sociology because sociology has like a vested interest in figuring out things like taboos and where they come from and like um incest is widely regarded as the last taboo you might say what about cannibalism there are lots of societies that engage in ritualized cannibalism so um but, so, like, basically, they study that a lot, and there's been lots of proposed explanations for, like, why basically all societies have a taboo against incest in some form or another. And none of these suggested reasons have held up under scrutiny. Like, you know, people will be like, um, like, genetic diversity. And it's like, well, in terms of, like, making, cogn- uh, like... Like decisions in your mind like we wouldn't have known that to make those decisions and two that's actually not relevant as long as you don't like just keep going in and in and in and in like like one incestuous pairing actually does not like create enough genetic problems that that seems like a reasonable explanation for the universal taboo and then, like, things like instinctive horror, like when you're raised in close proximity to another person, you just instinctively don't want to have sex with them. And, you know, they've done studies on that that don't seem to support that. And so sociology right now is mostly like, we don't know. We don't know why everybody has a problem with incest. <laughs> we don't know why that's universal.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to study, especially because, like, you'd want comparisons with uh, pre-agrarian societies. And those are increasingly mm-hmm. rare and difficult. To, yeah. to study uh, with any kind mm-hmm. of v- validity. So anyway, point being, <laughs> it feels like there's not enough they don't. And whether that's because yeah. of a cultural thing or a marketing thing, it mm-hmm. it does kind of make me feel like I sh- surely we can have long term n- different sex groups that do not all fuck each other. <laughs> Right.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, surely, surely to God. I mean, like, I don't know, like my, my sister has like a very like close knit friend group. There's a group of like four of them who were really tight in in high school and they're tight to this day. Uh, And there's two girls and there's two guys. And one of the guys is gay, so he wasn't involved in any speculation ever. Um, but even in my own family, we, like, prodded Mia all the time about her relationship with her friend Matt. And, like, really would be like, oh, oh, you like each other. And I remember, like, uh, one time she got mad and she just yelled. She was like, oh, my God, we don't want to date. We just love each other. <laughs> um, and, like, that's it's true to this day. Like, they love each other very much. And they've never even... For a moment been slightly romantically involved with one another and they've known each other since they were like very young adolescents and it's like that's allowed you can do that
1: and then <laughs> people know? will be like oh well then the guy's lying about not being in love with her and I'm just like fuck you fuck
0: you. oh it's like oh yeah well she may not have been because she met another guy and got married but he hasn't settled down yet so that means that secretly he's pining for her all along <laughs> or whatever it's like no no it doesn't mean that
1: I yeah I just I, and I mean, like, you know, it's not uncommon. like the 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 gay alternative is like, do gay friends have sex more often? And I think, yeah, gay dudes will probably move through their friends. not that I have any personal lesbians ex-
0: for sure. Not that I have any <laughs> personal
1: experience with that, but like I I know for a fact that like gay gay friendships without attraction are are possible. They happen all the time. Um, And even if they do, just because you're attracted to... I think this is where people, like, also have trouble disentangling it. Like, it is okay to feel sexual attraction for a friend. That doesn't mean you want to date them. It doesn't mean you're Mm -hmm. in love with them. And it doesn't mean that you can't put that to the side and be like, well, this is something I'm feeling, but I don't particularly want to act on it. And I'm not like... Yeah,
0: you could just be like, damn, like my friend objectively is a stone cold hottie like they are a hot person like um that might even mean that like when you find out that like a a mutual friend got together with that friend you're like way to go like they're a stone cold hottie or whatever but also for a variety of reasons you're like i'm not gonna pursue that you know like you're like oh i find them physically very attractive and i love them as a friend but i feel like they would be a terrible partner or like any other number of reasons right
1: yeah, I it it's this idea that like uh it makes me feel like especially I I have to wonder like are a lot of straight boys just really bad at disentangling sexual attraction from like Yes feeling like they need to date somebody.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean like I think a lot of it has to do with like um how like we just like it has to do with the um the negative effects that, like, patriarchy has on on straight men, actually. I think it has a lot to do with that. How, like, they um, don't feel like they can have, like, warm and empathetic relationships with their male friends. And they feel like all of their emotional, like, you know, like, caretaking needs to be focused on just one person. And that person also has to be someone that they're having sex with. And they feel like if they feel like warm feelings towards a woman that has to mean they also want to date her or they have to feel like if they like find someone attractive they also have to date like you know it's like 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 straight men aren't like allowed to experience the same like range of feelings and types of relationships that like women get to experience and that gay men by their you know implicit rejection of those like standards tend to get to experience a little bit more than 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 straight men as well
1: but like let's and let's also be fair there are plenty of times where this is reversed where it's like the nerdy girl with the hot boyfriend like she mm-hmm. like you're like are you not allowed to just be friends with this hot boyfriend why do you have to be in love with them like it's, <laughs> it's okay for you two to be very different and be friends and to not have you be secretly pining for them forever right? yeah like There's always got to be one person in the couple that is desperately pining for the other one, regardless if it's a male or female. The the way it happens is different, is more sexed, I feel. But like Mm -hmm. we see both examples and I'm like, guys, can't they just be fucking friends? Why? Why? Yes. Unrequited love is a thing. Why is everything this or will they, won't they? Mm-hmm. Like, come on, give me give me a good buddy comedy. <laughs> a mixed sex buddy comedy. Yeah. I think that's why. That's one of the reasons why It's Always Sunny is weirdly so good about this. Cause you're never like, yeah. which one of them is gonna fuck D?
0: Which is really extra funny because she and Mac are ma- like married in real life. Right. And fell in love on set. You know?
1: Like there's it's that... actually
0: really sweet because, like, Mac, real life Mac, was like, Oh my God, she's like the funniest woman I've ever met in my life. I love her. <laughs> like,
1: you're, I, I like that because you're like, You never, it, it's never even a fucking question that none of them no. are going to get together.
0: Yeah. Well, for one, she, she and Dennis are related. Right. Um, actually, like, like the closest they get to that, where is the dinner they have with Frank, when he's like, Jesus Christ, I am not banging my sister. <laughs>
1: Which, um, now that I live in Philadelphia, I feel like I really need to go back and watch that show and see if it resonates with me more. Um, Maybe. But, yeah, I, I I wish, I just, you know, Kim Possible doesn't bear this sin alone, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's
0: just... Oh, no, no, it's just an example of it. And I think it's the time that we finally were just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Why? What is this doing here? Because
1: <laughs> Danny Phantom did it. Fucking mm-hmm. Fairly Odd Parents kinda does it with Timmy and Trudy. Like it
0: And I feel like I'm more forgiving, like <sighs> I understand its presence in stories that are about teenagers. Um because it's relevant in teenagers' lives. Um I understand why you might put it there. Um I forgive it more in stories that are for teenagers. So, like, I forgive it more in Danny Phantom because the marketing demo for that is, like, 11 to 15 or whatever. So, like, yeah, kids at that age are very invested in, like, romantic relationships and romantic success. And so it makes sense that that would be something that is compelling to them in storytelling. But, like, when it's, uh, like, when, even if the story's about teenagers, if it's for seven-year-olds, like, why the fuck is that in there?
1: This time more than uh, a lot of times... We've dug into analysis less and less about specific plot points of the show, Uh, and we're gonna do one more before we finish, which is Shigo. Shigo, Bicon, the Bicon. So, okay, so let's let's. I'm gonna let you unpack this, being our resident by, But Shigo is Doctor Draken's sassy fashion savvy sidekick with green glowy hands and is the one that does most of the fighting with Kim. Why is Shigo a bycon?
0: I don't know. Sometimes people just have big buy bi energy, you know?
1: <laughs> okay, so what where does her buy energy come from?
0: I don't know. I really don't know, but, like, we're not the only people who think this. Like, the internet agrees with us. We're like, Shigo is clearly, like, she just has, like, bye, but maybe it's because she, like, the way that she, like, trash talks Kim um, (laughs) feels, like, flirtatious in a way, but in a way that's, like, safe for, like, a grown woman to be flirtatious with a teenage girl, like, not in a predatory way. Her and Kim are
1: catty. With each other, like they very,
0: are, they're catty with each other. Very, catty. and I like how she always calls her Kimmy. You know, um, the
1: in the episode where she wears the jacket that Kim really wants for some reason, I was just like, "That's a bye look."
0: Yeah, like her, just her style, like gives me also bye vibes. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, why is. Like, I also, like, okay, so when we watched Gargoyles, like, um, Elena Maza or whatever, I was like, she's a bi-con. A part of that was specifically what she wore. She wore, like, cuffed jeans and a bomber Is jacket, it, okay. you know? <laughs> Is it
1: tomboyishness? Maybe. Um... Like, less... You know? Like, more androgynous? Because, like, I feel like with lesbians, typically speaking, you you get lesbian vibes, if you're more lipstick or more butch, but maybe with bi-cons, it's a sense, it's a combination of a sense of more middle of the road androgyny and like certain fashion or cultural staples that have just happened to have been associated with the bi community.
0: Yeah. I think it also, maybe it might, I think maybe part of it is like, that one's behavior is androgynous, if that makes sense. Yes, like the yes. way that they interact with gender norms and gender expectations is in some way androgynous, because it's not a complete rejection or reversal. There are many things about Shigo that are very feminine, but there are aspects of her character that are are quite uh, masculine in many ways too.
1: Yeah, I think I think you for me hit the nail on the head with
0: mm-hmm.
1: behavioral androgyny.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
1: And, and if you do finger guns, I'm sorry. I just, there's no way. She doesn't do finger guns, but if you do finger guns in real life, I'm going to think you're bisexual. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just...
0: I don't know I don't know why we all do it. We just do. <laughs> I don't make the
1: rules. I, I don't. If you are a woman and wear a denim jacket, I'm sorry. I i can't not think you're (laughs) bisexual it's it's almost instinctual uh cuffed jeans if you look like lisa Maza, i'm sorry you're you're immediately bisexual regardless of your actual sexuality um
0: well what's really weird is that when people started talking about you know like by style stuff, you know, like because that wasn't like like there weren't enough by people who could connect to each other until like ten years ago to even talk about this kind of shit, and they would be like having a bob, cuffed jeans like this, and I was like looking down at myself, and I was like, oh my god, Let's <laughs> I like had a bob. I've always cuffed my jeans, like you know, just all kinds of stuff. I was like I didn't even know that people thought this was a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, so she go. Not because she does anything explicit. Just her swagger makes her yeah. a bycon.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's like, I don't know. I just like... I don't know. Her relationship with, like, the way that she taunts Kim, like, and how she always calls her, like, Kimmy and stuff. I feel like... I feel like if, like, they were both adults, you know, that, like... You know, Shigo would be like the dom, and Kim would be like a bratty sub. You know?
1: <laughs> and I think that is a perfect place for us to end our time with Kim Possible. I'm oh man, drawing the curtain.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. So as always, um, we are available to be contacted online via social media. Um we can be contacted on Facebook, we're Animates Podcast. We can be contacted on Twitter, we're at Animates. We can be emailed. We are Animates at gmail.com with the numeral 8 instead of the letters A-T. We also have a Patreon. We are Animates Podcast. You can technically use Patreon to contact us too, um, though I would rather you subscribe to our Patreon to receive intermittent bonus material. Um, We have no tiers. You can subscribe for $1 a month if you want to help us cover the basic costs of uh of making this show um but uh otherwise uh well yeah also please rate review and subscribe to the podcast um there is a chance that it will help other people find the show which would be really really cool um but uh other than that i have been Paige,
1: and i have been chris
0: and this has been animates thank you for listening